Good morning. If you're here, welcome. If you're watching online, welcome. I hope you got your Bibles with you, either the paper ones or the digital ones, and open it up or type it in. Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2 today and getting into verse and chapter 3. So we're going to be looking at verses 17 to chapter 3 and verse 6. I'm going to add verse 6 on at the end of the message. So last week, the question really is this, last week, just summarizing. If I ask you, if you're in here and you're privileged to be married today, if I ask you, are you faithful to the Lord? What would the Lord have said last week? How's your marriage? So our worship then, is getting into the nitty gritty now here in Malachi. Our worship is in life is being dictated not necessarily by what you're doing here, but by how you treat your spouse every day out there. And so this week we would say, am I a just person? Are we a just church? We would ask the question, well, ask the hurting in our community and they will tell you. This is our worship, and, and so we've entered into a, an era, an area that your pastor and I hope you have bathed with prayer. So let us stand in honor of God's word. Let's read this together. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. This is the Lord having a conversation with his chosen people that he has brought out, back out of exile in to, his, to the land. He has allowed them not only to rebuild the wall, but rebuild the temple at this point. And yet he says, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will, be sw- I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who op- oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray together. 
Lord, this is a word that we need to hear today. For our world is in turmoil and in division. And we are being forced into groups that you did not ordain. To take opinions that aren't even in your word. And so today, Lord, as far it is for your people, let us learn, Lord. Teach us today what is biblical justice and what and who must we pursue? What must we reject today so that we can make much of you with our life? For it is with this one life, God, you have given to us and it is precious. And we are supposed to offer it to you today as our worship until you come. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to listen, not just with our head, but with our heart, with our emotions, with all of us that you've given us. For you give it to us all, and we are supposed to use all of it to make much of you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember that old movie? It's called A Few Good Men, where I think it was Jack Nicholson gets to that point where the lawyer's pressing him, and he says, I just want to know the truth. And what did he say? You can't handle the truth. I would say today, when it comes to the issue of those who the Bible says that we are responsible for, we quite frankly can't handle the truth, and we don't even really want to hear about it. A week or so ago, Mike and I was privileged to go out with a godly sister who works with the homeless every day, and we just simply ask her, take us to where they live. Show us, introduce us to them. We want to meet them. We want to hear their story. We want to see what you do on a daily basis. So she was gracious enough to do that. I want to tell you a story of a, of a, this is not her name. Let's call her Samantha. The story of a young lady who had a promising future when she was young, but just happened to marry the wrong guy. So she lived a life in, an abusive situation for many years until one night the relationship escalated. She was beaten, strangled, dragged into a creek bed and left for dead. This was her story. She ended up turning to drugs, became homeless, and then she did what she had to do to survive and you can imagine what that entailed. She's doing good because of a woman who simply kept coming up to her place that she was at, living with a man, and kept loving on her as she finally quit slamming the door in her face. According to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, of youth who are runaways, walkaways, or throwaways from home or foster care, 90% are fleeing physical or sexual abuse in the home. That means every youth that you meet on the street ran away from their homes because their homes were not places of safety, but places of abuse. And if we are going to care for what the God sees that and thinks about that, we must hear their stories. What responsibility do we have for the Samanthas of the world? Vody Balkum says this, by the way, Vody Balkum is not a social justice warrior, and neither am I. 
just a Christian. Faithfulness that honors God will bless the kingdom of man. Faithfulness that honors God will bless the kingdom of man. But we have some barriers today, and there are many. Just want to mention a couple of them to you. First, it's for years, not just this generation, but for generations we have bought into a secular sacred divide. It, it looks something like this in our life. We come to church, and we even join into the programs. Maybe it used to be when I was young, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, maybe Tuesday night visitation. All of which we would do, we faithfully. But what happened when we went to our salesman job and, and your boss told you to close the deal? Well, then that's, Christianity doesn't work really good for closing deals. So what did you do? Well, that's my secular job. I got to do what the boss says. How about a banker? How do you do that? As a businessman, when your boss tells you to do something that you know is immoral, unethical, and even possibly illegal to exploit somebody else for the good of the company, we simply said, well, that's my secular job. That's what the boss said. What am I supposed to do? That, brothers and sisters, is the secular sacred divide. And it is a barrier for justice. It is a barrier for us to do what is right because if all of life is worship, everything in life is sacred. And every person's life is too. There's also a barrier. We're living it today. We're breathing the air. It is the oppressor and the oppressed. Everybody is, have you noticed? Everybody is. Everybody's the victim. Listen, this is important today. Trying to get to what the Bible thinks about things. If everyone is oppressed, no one really is. And what happens when we allow a victim mindset to be propagated? And listen, parents, whether you realize it or not, it is being propagated from the institutions of our secular culture and our children are coming out more Marxist than Christian. Right underneath our noses. We are creating a victim mindset where people burn down cities. And the girl that's being prostituted is still in the room, still being prostituted, and nobody cares. Everybody's oppressed. No one is. There is people that are oppressed. And the Bible tells us who are and what we should do. So two principles before we even get into this. And we've said this over and over and over again. It's a biblical principle. Truth precedes command. Biblical truth precedes our obedience. What the Bible tells us to do. So what is the truth? It's what we need to know about when it comes to issues of justice. And not only that, biblical promises informs how we live our life. What is the Bible promised is going to happen? What can I promise somebody who's, who's been a true victim of injustice? So our main idea. The Lord of hosts is just and expects his people to reject an attitude of entitlement and pursue an other-oriented justice. Let me say that again. The Lord of hosts is just truth. Command. He expects his people to reject attitudes of entitlement and pursue an others-oriented justice. First, the truth. God is just. Remember, we're calling him the Lord of hosts because that's what Malachi says. Look at verse 17, but there's a question. Lord said, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But they responded, how have we wearied you? Their response, 
This is more likely their attitude than their actual verbal response. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or they're simply asking this, where's the God of justice? So you see the question. And listen, if we're all honest, we've all asked that question. We've all said this, God's not fair. Doggone, he's not fair. Why does he do something? Here's what they were accusing God of. is either being unjust or apathetic. Either he had the power to do something, and he's not using it for, our benefit, for us, and we're God's people, or he just don't care. He's just apathetic. And if God is apathetic, then I'm going to be. Who cares about how I treat other people or how I worship her? Whether I bring a lame lamb in or if I rob God by holding on to my own finances like they actually belong to me. Who cares if God's not fair anyway? They were wanting to know, where is God in this situation? It seems like the evil people have it better than us. And so he must think the evil people are good and we are evil. We'll see this next week. Sort of gets to the heart of what they're saying. We're obeying God, but where's the payoff? It's not paying off to be holy. Not working out for me. So what is justice anyway? It's a good question before you ask God to bring it. Really probably need to know what it is. So what is justice? Just as the Bible teaches. It's judgment. Justice in the Bible is judgment. It is a legal word. It is a legal decision in a case. You see, that's the conversation going on. God is making some accusations against his people and calling for repentance. Justice is a legal decision where the rights of someone is determined and he assigns either reward or punishment. You have a person here, person A, person B. They're before the judge. The judge is determining who is in the right and who is in the wrong, and he is assigning either reward or punishment based off of that. Justice is judgment. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 28. I want you to see this is, there's no way for us to read this morning all the texts that are on about who we should be focused on and who God is focused on for justice. But it's clear. We're looking at God here. What's the truth about justice? What's the truth about the God who is just? Jeremiah 5 verse 28. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. You see it? Absolutely clear. Judgment, justice is judgment. And who is he judging the cause of? And who is he judging the rights of? Micah read just a minute ago Isaiah 42. Did you catch what justice does not do as he was reading? Isaiah 42 verse 3 says this, the just judge. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. In other words... Justice does not break the broken. 
Justice does not break the broken. And neither does God. God is justice. He is the just one. So the answer, where is God, is in chapter 3 and verse 1. It's in that word, behold. Behold. So, like if you're walking and looking for somebody and they're standing behind you, what are they going to say? Hey, I'm here. That's what they're saying. Where is the God of justice? He said, behold, hey, I'm right here. I'm here. He is here. Same time, he says, I'm going to send him. Behold, verse 1, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Listen, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He is present, and he is ready to act. The Lord is looking forward now. Remember how the prophets would often do. They would often take multiple things, and they would... Squeeze it together. So we're seeing not only the first coming of Christ, but also the second coming of Christ. He's not dividing that up for us. I'm not either this morning. Anytime you see the Bible speaking of the day of the Lord, of the day of His coming, the heavy emphasis on that is just the second coming. So that's the dominant picture of looking. Do you want justice? Well, justice is coming because I am going to send one to prepare the way, and then he's going to come. Going to sit in the place of his judgment. You see, justice won't simply fit into what we want it to mean. Justice is not really safe, nor comfortable. It's not some generic term that just means return to traditional values of, of morality and try to figure out the difference between right and wrong. Justice is a person and his name is Yahweh and he says you want justice? Well I'm going to come. And when we understand who justice is, the question comes in verse 2. Who can stand? But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? That's, now that's the right question. Before we start throwing around justice too freely, we better look at the God of justice. Because if He would have came ten years ago, most of us would have been in hell. He's a God of justice, but oh, what a God of patient mercy He is. Look at what He said He's coming for he is like a refiner's foul fire and like a fuller's soap. So he's saying, I'm, I'm here. At the same time, he's saying also too, isn't he? I'm coming. I'm coming in my fullness and justice with me. And the first thing I'm going to do is cleanse. Do you see that? Verses 2 to 4. He's coming like fire with fire in one hand and, and soap in another. He's coming first, the first time he came. He came for salvation, didn't he? He came for salvation and then for judgment. And so, it's a lot we can say here. He's coming the first time for salvation. He's coming the next time for judgment. There's so much to say there, but you need to understand the context of the passage. He is not coming for destruction. He's coming for restoration. 
He's concerned about purity. And remember, he is beginning with his leaders. He's beginning with the pastors and the deacons and the teachers. Why are you doing what you are doing? And why are you not focused on what I am focused on? Why are you not focused on who I am focused on? It is an opportunity for the Lord is going to come with His fire. And he's going to purify. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. People were making too much of their leaders saying, I'm with Him and I'm with Him and I'm with Him. And He said, you better be careful. Every single leader and every single person is going to go through the fire of God's purity. And He's going to look at the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And for that they will be judged, not for what people see. He's coming to cleanse us. Coming to cleanse his people. Soap, it was this lie soap. The picture of is putting his people in a giant bathtub and, and scrubbing them. Never had a bath with lie soap before. Maybe somebody has. It, it's not a pleasant experience. He's warning them they need to be careful lest they themselves be washed down the drain. The first people he purifies is his priest. You see that in verse 3? I will purify them, and they will bring an offering to me. Why? Because he is the just one, and he deserves it. I will come. I will cleanse. Verse 5. I will judge. The next time the Lord's come, he's coming for judgment, brothers and sisters. Today is the day of salvation. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Verse 5, I will bring a swift witness against, notice all of these are put together, against sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And none of these who do this fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So do you hear the question? We want justice and we want it now. What is, what is Yahweh saying here? Okay, you first. That's what he's saying. You want justice? You don't know what you're asking for. How about if I bring justice and start with you? I'm going to start with my people. I'm going to cleanse you and then I'm going to judge Look at verse 6. This is the connecting verse from this week and next week. From we are supposed to pursue justice to we must pursue everything we do in gratefulness. Listen to this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, our children of Israel, are not consumed. What is he saying? Based off the way that I look at your life and, and your motivations for why you are doing what you're doing and why you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, I should have consumed you. But instead, the Lord's actions are based off His character and based off His promises. Therefore, you're not consumed. Here's the answer. Here's what He's saying. So repent. 
The Lord is patient and long-suffering, not willing of any of you should perish, but all of you to come to repentance. So repent. Therefore, so, let's stop for a second. That's the truth this morning about justice. And truth precedes command. So I didn't start telling us who we need to go help. I started with this. God is just. He is justice. And He's coming. And when He comes in justice, He will judge absolutely without any partiality. Therefore, therefore, the Lord of hosts expects His people to reject entitlement. So what in the world is that? Entitlement. Probably need to learn that word because it's being pumped into all of us. Your children from a very young age are beginning to, to feel like they are entitled, aren't they? Almost you don't really have to teach that. Entitlement. It is an attitude first. Entitlement is an attitude. It is an attitude of deservedness. I don't even know if these are really words. They might be. If not, let's make them one. You know, just trying to describe a word, you know. It's, it's an attitude of deservedness. It's, it's an attitude of demandedness. I deserve it. I demand it. It is what I would call a meocentric attitude of justice. I deserve it. It's about my rights. It's about what I am entitled to. And you're going to give it to me. Any parent ever experienced that? You're, you're not telling the truth if you're not shaking your head, yes. Not only have I experienced it, I have done that to my parents. They believe that they're entitled to cell phones, video games, and a mama who is at their beck and call every time they squeal. And when you allow them to do that, you give them a sense of entitlement that they take into this world and use it to destroy the very nation that we neglect. It is entitlement that is on the news every day, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. I deserve it, so give it to me or else. This is what they were basically trying. Trying to manipulate the Almighty. Not a good idea, by the way. <laughs> Entitled accusation. He's saying, you're wearying me. Why are they wearying Him? Because they're accusing God of injustice. They're accusing God of apathy. What they want to try to do is manipulate them like, like we do sometimes and like even our children do to try to get God to do what He wants to do when they're really just mad because following God doesn't seem to be paying off very well for them. There is an entitled accusation. There is also an entitled response. Remember that response they've been given almost every time? What? Then... You know, you're just an entitled brat. <laughs> and they were like, what am I doing wrong? Here's the truth. Entitled people don't think they're entitled. Right? Uh, prideful people don't think they're prideful. Just ask them. They'll tell you what's wrong with you. That's what they're doing, by the way. Entitled people blame shift. That's what they're saying. So think about this. We're going we're gonna to see this in a second. They're not pursuing justice. They don't care about the oppressed. They're offering sacrifices. They're giving God their leftovers if they give Him anything at all. And then they're accusing God of not being fair. What are they doing? They're just refusing to look at their own issues and acknowledge them and repent and blame shifting it on God Himself. 
We are called to reject this. We're going to see this next week. We are called to embrace humble gratefulness and reject entitlement. It, be, it would begin good, old James, I love James. James just shoots it straight. He's my kind of guy. James 1.17 says this. Here's a good place to start. Here's a good place to start. Before we start pursuing anything. James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now there's a good starting point. My God is just, and yet... He had not consumed me. Instead, he has redeemed me and he has given me his name. And everything I have given, including the cancer and the criticism, is mercy. Is it a chance for me to know my Lord better? All I have ever received in life is grace. The Lord of hosts expects his people to not only reject entitlement, but to pursue justice. And I will just stop right here and confess that at this point in the sermon has given me great anxiety, even potentially sinfully so, that I have repented of. It has made me physically sick, partly because I cannot declare everything that I want to say here, and I've got to shrink it down to this time the other thing is, we have redefined these words in our culture, and most of us, even sitting here or watching online, don't even know what the words mean anymore. We get, we get here the word justice and rights and equity and fairness and entitlement. And we define them in our own minds, and we pay seventy dollars to $100,000 to send our kids to college to teach them these words mean that has nothing to do with biblical justice. And then the preacher is too scared to preach on it because he's afraid how people will respond. But God's word is clear, brothers and sisters. We must pursue there is a postmodern ideology, and if you don't know what postmodernism is, I'm going to challenge you at the end to learn what it is. Because your children know what it is, even if they don't know of the name. These are words, in other words, here's what it teaches them when they come out of school. You are in the group you're in, and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. And so your group needs to gather together in your group and you need to fight for justice for your group and your rights and your equity and your fairness. Brothers and sisters, as a Christian, do we see something wrong with that? It is the anti-Christian state of mind. So listen to me today. Me-centered justice is not biblical justice. And there is no need for us to apologize for not calling it what it is. It is self-centered power going awry. Justice, brothers and sisters. What we are talking today, biblical justice, is theocentric in its foundation. Biblical justice is theocentric. It is centered in the God of justice. That is the truth. But listen, it has an application. And the application of justice is other-centered it is never me-centered. Justice is theocentric in its foundation. It is other-centered in its application. This is why people live the 
comfortable nature of their homes and go overseas and live in a place where people are suffering so that they may love them with both the gospel and their life. That's why they do that. Because the application of the mercy they received is always other-centered. It can be nothing less. It stops being biblical justice as soon as it becomes about me. We've seen this already last week. That people are treating their spouses, men were treating their spouses in what verse 16 called in a violent way. That's injustice. Divorcing them for any little reason, casting them aside, turning them into the oppressed. You see, unfaithfulness and injustice are best friends. You cease being faithful. You do not have to try to become unjust. It just happens. As soon as it becomes about me, listen, I was broken as me and Micah drove around with her and she spotted the broken people and I didn't even see them. I had the same eyes she did. You see, unfaithfulness and injustice are best friends. Let me tell you a story that some people won't understand. I acknowledge that, but I pray that some will. Trying to get to the heart of a problem here. I got chickens, right? So let me tell you a story about a bunch of a few chickens. There was a chicken. Lived in the backyard. Of course, the chicken didn't know it was the backyard. Chicken wake up every day, come out of his little chicken house, come out of his little chicken door, go down his little chicken ramp. He'd peck around on the ground, find his little bugs and his worms. You know, just being a chicken. Every once in a while, there were these people up in front of them. They had a bigger chicken house than they, they did. They would come out, and they'd bring food. And woo! I always thought chickens looked good with arms, because they just come up. You're running, you know, up there at the fence, and I come up there to the fence, and the little chicken does, and she, she waits for the food to come out. And every once in a while, they bring special food. They got a special. They got a, I got a little red bucket right there. And every once in a while, they bring special food out there, and they put it in that bucket. And woo, it's good. We eat that. But the weirdest thing happens sometimes. The weirdest thing. Those same people that bring them food, they come out sometimes, and they take care of my eggs. I work hard for that egg. It takes me 10 to 15 minutes to cluck out that egg. Right? The same people that brings me food taking my egg. I, but, you know, the food show is good. And one day, you see one of my girlfriends over here, and she's been having some trouble. She's getting a little old. And she's really having trouble laying in eggs. And one day, that same guy who brings that food, the same guy who steals my eggs, comes and takes her away. He didn't bring her back. I don't know whether she got to move into the big house or what. Imagine now. I know that's a little tongue-in-cheek. Imagine something supernatural happens. Imagine that overnight that chicken becomes self-aware. Imagine that chicken becomes human on the inside. And that chicken becomes keenly aware that I'm living in somebody else's lot. I'm trapped in this thing and I can't get out. 
And the only thing them people bring me is their leftover scraps and they throw it in the bucket for me because they don't want to eat it themselves. And I'm here because I make these eggs and they come and steal my eggs. And if I don't produce enough eggs, they're going to come and take me away where they took my friend away. And so you live the next five years of your chicken life waiting every time that man comes out of that door wondering if he's bringing feed or an axe. And you realize sooner or later it's coming because I'm living in somebody else's world, eating somebody else's slop, and my power is simply based off what they give me. Now, I'm not asking you to overanalyze that illustration. That's not my point. I'm simply saying people who have experienced injustice feel like the chicken. They'd eat what other people don't want. They get things that are the most precious to them stolen away from them and are just waiting to be thrown aside like chicken bones after Sunday dinner. I'm not asking you to analyze it. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm not asking you to turn this into some kind of political conversation. I'm asking you, can you for one second feel what that chicken must feel like when she realizes that she is just waiting on somebody else's to go on somebody else's dinner table? Try it. I've tried all week. You know, the truth, I can't do it. I can't imagine what it would be like to be living in a motel, being tricked out 12 times a day. And having Christian people say, oh, well, she chose that. This is the problem, you see. We don't feel the pain of people. And listen to me. If you don't feel the pain of a prostitute, you are dangerous to help one. What we need is mercy. And for most of us, there's some of you, God's given you the spiritual gift of that, and I praise the Lord for you. But most of us have to pray for it. We have to fast and pray for it. We have to say, God, I can't do what you called me to do. You're expecting me to reject this entitlement, but you're expecting me to pursue something, to pursue someone. But I don't love them. I know my doctrine. I know my theology. But I do not love people. And until you don't love people, you are dangerous with the gospel that you claim to believe. We need mercy, brothers and sisters. We must allow God to enter into other people's pain and their shame and feel it for at least five seconds before we just walk away and call it a day. Why? Because Jesus came. He didn't send somebody else. Jesus came. He entered our world. He abided with us. To say He satisfied our justice is to say He took on our shame and our pain and He bore all the penalty of our sin on Himself. He came so that He might redeem us and restore us. And I ask you, when you apply that into your everyday life, what do you think it's going to look like? Biblical justice is rooted in the love of God that sent His own Son. Biblical justice pursues the defenseless. Verse 5. Who are the defenseless? In other words, here's what we're asking. Who do we pursue with mercy? Uh, Who are the recipients of biblical justice? It tells us. I'm not going to make my list up here. I'm just going to get it from the Bible. Here's what he says. 
Look at the last part of verse 5. Those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. You see it? They're the defenseless. These are four groups. Usually we put them in three categories because the Bible normally puts widows and orphans together. They were the ones that were, were open to being exploited. They were, as the, as the thing said initially, the test that I read, they're the castaways, the throwaways, the marginalized. Every country has them. What does the word oppressed mean? Those who oppress the hired worker. This is what it means biblically. To keep down by the unjust use of one's authority. It is to take your authority that you have and to hold somebody else down with that authority. That's what it means. That's what it means to oppress somebody. It's the willful use of, of power to control the weak, physically, economically, socially, and especially in our culture, sexually. I don't care what you think about him. He's right right here. I'm just going to say it. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He put his tail right on the head on the biblical term of oppression. An unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow, that it will follow itself. That's a just law. When we do not use our power to impose something on somebody else that we're not willing to live by on our own. He's saying that that principle affects the way we treat what they call, what we, they call day laborers. Day laborers were people who did not own their own property. They would go out and you would hire them. They lived in a precarious. They were, they were more precarious in their life than slaves were because at least slaves had a home to go, through, go to. They lived hand to mouth. We would say it there. These are people who oftentimes rent their homes and live paycheck to paycheck. They're just one paycheck away from being homeless. You ever notice where the check cashing and the title loans places pop up at? They pop up near the poorest communities so they can, they can charge them enormous interest rates to keep them exactly where they are. They prey on them. God calls that oppression. You're using our authority to create things and systems and even communities to oppress people. They pay them slave wages under the table because they know they can get by with it. And God condemns it as injustice. He tells us that if God gives us the privilege of running a business, then we should make it our aim to never oppress those that are living hand to mouth. But not only that, the widows and the orphans, you see, they're such a good illustration because they have no support structure at all in that culture. None. There's no government. It's giving them, giving them, helping them. They had nothing. When this guy would divorce this woman because she burned her toast, she would be thrust out. No support system. Exodus 22. Running out of time. I got, I got, I got to speed up. Exodus twenty-two, twenty-two. Want you to see this from one end of the Bible to the next. Exodus twenty-two, twenty-two. 
You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. <laughs> if that text don't make you go, whoo, this is the God that doesn't change? Listen, we need to see what God cares about and be moved by it. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I would ask you what that word visit means. When the Lord visited the children of Israel, what did he do? Is that, was that like a prison visitation where he just come in and had an hour with them and left? No, he delivered them. He loved them. He cared for them. You see, this is the question that we should ask and we do ask. How can we help the homeless? How can we really help? How can we help them without enabling them? How can we help them without contributing to their self-destructive lifestyles? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we bring Jesus and His glorious redemption to them? I think people that have entered in the world at any level of adoption and foster care are better, better suited to answer this question. Because you ask me, a child that was in an orphanage, Stephen, what did you have to do to bring the gospel to them? Simply give up everything. Bring them into my home. Love them. Care for them. Put up with the tantrums. Put up with the issues. That's what it took to give them Jesus. That's what it takes if you foster a child. You can't foster from a distance. You must bring them in and you must put up with all the hell just for the opportunity to give them Jesus. And I tell you today, the same principle applies to anybody who is being treated unjustly, who do not have any defense nor a voice. We cannot give them the gospel unless we give them ourselves. To this, brothers and sisters, we have been called. To this, we are responsible not from to your pastor, but to the Lord of hosts, who is the God of justice. This applies to us, brothers and sisters. So what today? I'm going to leave aside the, the alien there. Don't miss that. He is thrust aside as well. God cares about the immigrant, according to his word. So what? Let's go back to the gospel. We always go back to the cross. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. The reason we do that is to always take us back to the gospel. On the cross, our justice was satisfied. It's our starting point. It's our finishing point, too. So let me just run through this right quick, and I'm done. I'm sorry. I'm going over. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has went to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Why did Christ come? Matthew 1, 21, he came to save his people from their sins. Romans 3, 25 and 26, God put forth his own son as a wrath-removing substitute by his own blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Why? Why did Christ come? Why did he shed his blood? So that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe. Brothers and sisters, do you grab this today? If you are in Christ, you are on the positive side of justice for eternity. You will never experience the wrath of God. God has promised this to His own, that He has satisfied the justice of God, so I'll never experience it. He has declared me justified, righteous in His sight, and now He is making me actually holy as, by the way, I live my life. I live the rest of my life knowing I'm not saved by the works that I've done. But according to his own mercy, Titus 3, 5, I remember that that was me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Whoever that was that makes me uncomfortable to go to, that was me. That's what he says. Idolaters, thieves and liars, those who oppress other people, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That's who we are. And so, brothers and sisters, our lives exist to live as a demonstration of that. It's the purpose of your life. Whether you accept it or reject it is your decision. But this is the truth today. God created all people in His image for a purpose. And He redeemed us and gave us a name that is above every name. And He has told us to live out of that grace and mercy that we constantly receive, to reflect that in the way we live. And the best way, and the first place we reflect that, is to go towards those who do not have a voice, who do not have a defense, who the world casts aside and marginalizes. They are our target audience, and they are worthy of our life, according to the Lord. And I do not have to worry about what anybody thinks because the Lord has told me what is good. Hasn't he? Micah 6.8 What is good? What does the Lord require of us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? I want to challenge you in two ways and I'm done. I just want to ask you this question. Who are you pursuing? Who? I'm not asking you to pursue an ideology or a theology. We do, we do that. We love it. But a theology that doesn't affect the way we live is bad theology. Who are you pursuing? Pursue him in simple ways. Do justice. Don't talk about it. Do it. Practical. What else can you do? You better understand the world you're living in. So practically pursue justice. Do it. But understand the world that you're living in. Here's what I want to challenge you to. The devil wants to keep you ignorant in two ways. Biblically and historically. And many of you are reading things that are destroying your worldview because you have not challenged yourself to actually study the history behind it. I would challenge you today, people who love to read, go and look up people who practice Karl Marx's ideology and see where it led. 
See who Stalin killed first. Three million poor people. It leads to place. Understand your history before you pay $100,000 to send your kids to an institution that's going to teach it to them. Come January, I'm going to teach a worldview class. I would challenge you to be a part of it. Practically, brothers and sisters. And I wish I had more time. Love the way the Lord loves. Walk the way the way the Lord walked. In humble service. Not in angry activism. In humble service. Going towards those who can never pay you back. To this, brothers and sisters, we have been called. And so now, as we go to the Lord in prayer, we're about to worship our King. We're about to go to the tables. Let us remember, as we pray, the Lord paid our penalty. He gave us His righteousness. And God's orientation toward me from now into eternity is mercy, mercy, mercy. And so, let us praise the Lord for what He has done. Pray with me. Lord, I heard someone say one time, Lord, to preach any message, to teach any lesson is to fail. <laughs> because we cannot express who you are and what you've done clear as it should be presented. And so now, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to do his work in us and me. Thank you, Lord, that no matter what we experience, we can come here to the end of the service and remember that the Lord came. You sent your Son for us, God, to redeem us, to restore us. And you have promised one day that you will see every tear of Samantha in the motel room right now. I don't know what she's going through. That you see her suffering. And you've called us to be instruments in your hands. And so God, show us how we must live to reflect such a wonderful Savior. And so Lord, as we come to the tables, we celebrate your Son, His person, His work, His promises. That one day he's going to come back and justice will flow like the ocean. But until then, Lord, may we labor to be people who do justice and to walk in your steadfast love until you come for us or until we go to you. Make it so, Lord. However long we have, renew us today afresh and anew, that we will not waste our life being comfortable and taking the easy path. But we will go to those that are broken. And we will abide with them to see Christ formed in their life. To this you have called us, God. And we are not worthy, but we are willing. Use us, God. Use us, we pray. Be worshipped now in Jesus' name. Amen.